Well, good morning and welcome to Involved Church Onsite. Uh, we're here in front of the Idaho State Capitol building in Boise, and there's a reason for that. We are going into Romans chapter 7, and it doesn't take long before you realize that Romans chapter 7 is about law. In fact, the word law is used 19 times in this chapter. If you go back to chapter 6, you're going to see the word sin used 17 times. And so it's chapter 6, we're talking a lot about sin. And in chapter 7, we're going to be talking a lot about the law. So I thought it would be fitting to come outside on the steps in front of the, the Capitol building where a lot of decisions are made regarding the law. That's what we're going to be talking about. What's interesting is we're also in the whole series on Romans called Peace. And as we look in this mini-series on peace, I think the things we need to deal with are, one, sin. And we understand that we cast that sin on Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for our sins. And so he's the one that paid the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead to give us life, new life. And in that new life, we have uh, this walk with God. We're reconciled to him. Well, we're also going to talk about the law because we need to deal with the law. In order to have peace, we've got to deal with law, rules, do's and don'ts, and those types of things. How do we deal with it? Well, the same way we deal with sin. We give it to Jesus. And Jesus came to this world to fulfill the law. He walked, he lived, he, he pursued, or he, he completed all the Old Testament laws. Uh, he didn't do the, the laws, well, like the Pharisees and the scribes. They talked about different laws and added laws to it. But he dealt with the laws from the scripture and the Old Testament laws and the laws that God gave, he fulfilled those on our behalf. And so we give it to him and we say, please take these laws. We can't do them ourselves. And he, in fact, did. And so he lived a perfect life, a life we could not live. And we're going to be reminded of that as we go into chapter 7. But before we do, I thought it'd be fun to look at some funny laws that Idaho has. So I got this from onlyinyourstate.com. I didn't go through all of Idaho's laws to verify whether or not these are actually true. But I thought these were fun, and, and you might find them somewhat humorous. First, uh, one, it is against the law to live in a dog kennel or house, unless you're a dog. I didn't realize that but apparently that's true so all of you men who like to say well you're living in the dog house that is illegal just to let you know uh, in Idaho Falls it is illegal to ride a motorcycle if you're over 88 so there you go I had no idea uh, don't think about riding a merry-go-round on Sunday because apparently that is also against the law uh, in Tamarack it is illegal to buy onions after dark without a permit who knew? I don't know if that includes onion rings or not, but um, apparently that's, that's the case. Uh, you also can't sell chickens after sundown without permission from the sheriff. I'm assuming, again, you could probably buy uh, fast food, cooked chickens, things like that, but apparently you cannot buy uh, chickens after sundown. So, uh, number six, selling an Idaho deluxe potato with rot, blemishes, or sun damage can get you sent to jail for up to six months. Apparently we take our, our potatoes very seriously here. I, I think this one's funny. In fact, this one I actually have the, the law here. So in Pocatello, you are required by law to smile. 
And I quote, it is prohibited for, for pedestrians and motorists to display frowns, grimaces, scowls, threatening and glowering looks, gloomy and depressed facial appearances, generally all of which reflect unfavorably upon the city's reputation. So like I like to tell my kids, turn that frown upside down and let it become a smile, so to speak. Um, number eight, okay. public displays of affection in Idaho are limited to under 18 minutes. That seems actually like a lot of time, but that's what the law states. In Eagle, it's illegal to sweep dirt from one's house into the street. So if you live in Eagle, you might want to take note of that one. Um, 10. The state of Idaho forbids you from fishing off the back of a camel. There's got to be a story behind that one, I'm assuming. That's an interesting one. So in case you go out looking for another animal to, um, to fish off the back of, you also need to know that it's illegal for you to fish off the back of draft drafts. So uh, no drafts, no camels when fishing, or at least you can't go off the back of them. And number 12, okay, according to the Mayhem section of Idaho Code, cannibalism is also illegal, it's good to know, unless it is necessary to survive. Sounds a little subjective, kind of like the essential laws we have today. What is exactly essential? What is necessary? But hopefully people take that with, with good measure there. Well, if we were living 2,000 years ago, we would be faced with Roman law. That would be the law we're living under. Here, we're living under the United States law, but 2,000 years ago, if we were living in Israel or the Mediterranean area, Europe, we'd be living under Roman law. And there are a couple Roman laws I want to bring attention to, and these are laws on marriage. We have two forms of marriage that were presented during the early church age. And so I was looking at a, an article by Andrew Birkin. He uh, did a journal or an article in the Yale Law Journal in 1907. So this is a, a little going back a few years to, to some of the things that he had discovered at that point. But he talked about two types of forms or two forms of marriage that were being used at the time. Uh, that Jesus walked on the earth. One, at least early on in, in the Roman Empire, was one called cum manu. And this is when a wife would marry or a woman would marry a husband and she would become a member of his family, but only if she breaks all her former ties. So legally, she's bound to her husband and the marriage is indissoluble. Okay? So it can't be broken up. It's, it's fixed. That marriage is fixed. So that's a cum manu. Now there's another form, and this one became much more prevalent during the time of Christ, at least by what most historians are saying. And that's the sign manu. And this is when a wife remains a member of her own family, the family of birth, and retains her gods, her own property, and merely leaving, just leaving her father's household. It is an equally binding contract and was easily dissoluble. So in that case, a lot of, uh, a lot of divorce and remarriage was happening. Now, one of the things that is quite different than today is when you have a, a child, most children would follow, in fact, most cases, the children would follow the, the father's line. 
And that's just the way it would have been. So, so moms would have come and gone in and out of family. And this actually created quite an issue uh, in, in the Roman Empire. And they started to really struggle with it. And I imagine there was, there was quite a few discussions and quite a few laws that may have been written. In fact, we know that other laws were written concerning divorce and remarriage as time went by because they began to realize that the family unit was really struggling. And so this might be one that Paul brings to light in chapter 7 because it was, well, it was happening in Rome. Maybe the discussions were happening in Rome. How do we deal with marriage? How do we deal with divorce and, and all of that type of thing? Uh, much like, you know, what's going on in our, our country today. Because let's be honest, today we're probably similar to the sign Manu, which is the idea that we're, we're equally coming together. And unfortunately, I, I would have to argue, unfortunately, today marriage is kind of viewed as two individuals living under a rooftop. But, but God's design in marriage, well, let's, let's read about it. Mark chapter 10, 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Uh, that's what Jesus had to say. That's what God's word has to say, that the two become one flesh. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when he made them male and female. He made them to come together. And really, they're two individuals that are supposed to come together into one. Not two individuals living under a rooftop trying to maintain their own identity. They're two individuals becoming one. And that's the design that God has for marriage. Well, with all these laws, what do you do? And is that the point of Romans chapter 7 is about marriage? Actually, it's not. It's just an example that Paul uses, and we'll talk about that when we get into chapter 7. Why is this, why is this so important? Well, laws are everywhere. Everywhere you go, you're going to find a law. We have laws in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament, right? But we also have some, some oh, understandings of ways we are to live for Christ in the New Testament. There are expectations we ought to live spelled out in the New Testament, right? So, so we want to live by those. But then uh, I just want to read some of this. We have civil laws. We have ceremonial laws. We have moral laws. We have the United States Constitution, and we have the amendments, and then we have people's interpretation of the Constitution and people's interpretation of the amendments. And if you break one of those, you go and you stand in front of a judge. And then that judge is going to decide whether or not you are living with the intent of that law or not. That's the world we're living in today. And so that can, that, that can, can be overwhelming at times. We have the, the Bible and what it has to say. We have spiritual laws. We have these civil laws. We have moral laws. How do we live in a way that honors and pleases God? Well, I want to tell you something here. God has given us freedom on this earth have laws and he's given us government and he talks about that we're going to get to it in Romans chapter 13 and talking about how we are to live with the government that God has put over us and the authority that they have and we often say in, in Christianity that we submit to the governing authorities out of respect and honor because God has placed them there and we go as far as well, as far as we can go without violating God's word and God's truth and I would say that that's a good way just to state it real briefly. It's a lot more complicated than that, or it can be a lot more complicated than that. But we go as far, we submit to the government as far as 
we can without violating God's truth. Well, there's one law that man cannot touch. And that's God's law. That's God's truth. And it has to be about salvation. And so what I want you to hear very clearly from this scripture that we're going to be reading and going through, and what I want you to know is that God is the judge. And when you stand before him in the final days, when you stand before him in heaven, and he is acting as judge right there, and you're standing there, you need to know that Jesus Christ comes onto the scene, and that Jesus Christ stands in defense of you, and he says, I completed the law for you. I did everything that was perfect. I did everything that was right. I did everything that the Old Testament required. Even when Satan came and he gave me the temptations, I took God's word and I threw it back in Satan's face and I didn't do what Satan was trying to get me to do. I did not fall into temptation. Jesus did that because we needed it. He did that because the law needed to be completed and he completed it on our behalf. And so you may feel guilty at times. I know I felt guilty at times. I know, I've asked the question, God, why would you love me? Jesus, am, am I doing okay? Jesus, am I messing up so much that you, you don't want anything to do with me? And all of that is usually based on the do's and the don'ts. It's based on the law. But the reality is, Jesus completed the law for us. So here's what I want you to hear today. You're not here to complete the law. You're here to love Jesus. Okay? You're not here to complete the law because Jesus has already completed the law for you. You're here to love the one who completed the law. You're here to love Jesus. You're here to thank him. You're here to honor him. You're here to, to live for him in a, in a pleasing way. To say, yes, I want to live for this one who, who died for me. I want to live for this one who completed the law for me. It's, it's about honor and respect. It's not about a checklist and the do's and the don'ts. Behind me is, is a building where lawmakers come together and they form laws to, to help make a better world, a better society. And some of the laws we agree with, some we don't. I understand that. But the one law that they can't touch is the law regarding your salvation and the law regarding your eternal life. That's the law that God deals with. That's the law that God judges. And he judges based on the life of Jesus Christ. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then he knows that you have righteousness and that Jesus Christ is giving you his righteousness. And you have perfected the law. You have completed the law through Christ. And so just like we give Jesus sin, we give Jesus the law and know that he completes it. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Since I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, the word the actually isn't in the text. That's a definite article. And when the word the is in the text, it's usually referring to the Old Testament law. Here he could very easily be saying, I'm speaking to those who just simply know law. A very general sense. But then he uses the word brothers and sisters, which he hasn't used since chapter 1, verse 3. It's a, it's a term of endearment, and it's a way for him to say brothers and sisters, like my Jewish brothers and sisters, or maybe he's saying his Christian brothers and sisters, those who have placed their faith in Christ. I'm speaking to you. Listen to this. Please listen to this. Don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? I don't think we would disagree with that. 
That's a pretty easy concept to grasp. If I'm living, the law applies. If I'm dead, the law doesn't apply. I think that's pretty simple to, to grasp. But then he goes on and he gives this example. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while she lives. Hebrew law had that, and there was some Roman law that had that. The kumanu, okay? Legally bound her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So death comes in, she's released. There doesn't have to be divorce or anything like that. She is just simply released. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Because when death happens, there's a separation. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, you might write a lot of questions in. We're texting our questions in, and you might be asking about marriage. I, I do want to say this. This passage is not talking about marriage so much or teaching about marriage. Let me say it that way. It's not teaching about marriage. It is bringing up marriage as an example for us. And it's saying, here's an example that we need to pay attention to. We know that as long as people are alive and married, that they stay together and that they're legally bound together. But if one dies, then they're okay to remarry. That's the example. Verse 4 is the point. So don't get caught up in the, in the marriage debate, as you will. Hit and understand and read verse 4 because this is so important. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. When we were born, we were living, well, to try to do things right. And if we had any interest in, in pursuing God in any way, we would try to do that by doing the do's and don'ts and, and living according to a law. But what we see even in chapter 6 is that sin would take the law and then distort it. And when Jesus walked on the earth, he was walking with scribes and Pharisees, and that's what they had done. They had taken and, and taken the law and distorted it and used it for their own gain, their own purpose. They'd get money from people. They would cause other people to do things that they shouldn't do just to kind of feel that power that they could have through having the law and those types of things. And so certainly the law can be used in a very sinful, oppressive way. But what he's talking about in this passage is that you have died to that law. And you can have confidence that you've died to that law because Jesus Christ has died for you on the cross. And he died being perfect. We are united with him. And because we're united with him, we have in Christ completed the law. And so since we have died to the law, we know that we too have been resurrected in a new life. And when we're resurrected, we are united with Christ in this new life. And so we're no longer living according to the law. We're living according to Christ. That's the point that he's making here in chapter 5. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. We're, we're not... We're not living by the do's and the don'ts. We're living by Christ. Now, we need to couple that with some other verses because people will say, great, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do then. That's not the point. The point is we have the freedom now to do exactly what God wants us to do, to live the way God wants us to live. 
Ephesians 2.10, I know I go back to this quite often, but we need to, to memorize this one. Stick it in our heads, stick it in our minds. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has something amazing he wants to do with your life, but we have to follow him. We have to give our life to him so we do exactly what, we, what he wants us to do. It's not about what we want to do. It's about what he wants us to do. So he died, completed the law, and in Christ we have completed the law as well. That's a fascinating truth. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law, but were working in us to bear fruit for death. That's a lot what chapter 6 was talking about. He just reminds us of that here. Uh, the fact that when we are sinning and we use the law to, to even sin more, uh, it's so funny, isn't it, how when a law is written, uh, we oftentimes find ways to go around the law instead of understanding what the intent of the law is. God gave us laws in the Old Testament, so we, have, we, we would understand what that intent is. And, and that intent in the Old Testament was that we would pursue God, we would know God, we would follow God, we would have faith in Him, we would trust in Him. But oftentimes it, it turned into other things. But Christ came so that we would actually have a person to follow and know and understand what the intent is. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. Just what we have talked about. Since we have died to what has held us, those do's and those don'ts, those rules and the law, so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. And here I think he is talking about, in fact, he has a definite article in front of it to say the, the law, which is the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. It brings to mind the fact that people were living in a way still to that day, even though they knew about the story of Christ, they were still struggling with the concept of how do we live in a way that honors God? Do we go back to the law and try to honor him through the law, or do we try to honor him through Christ? So I hope you hear this, and I hope you hear it loud and clear. We live our lives trusting in Christ, not in ourselves and not in what we can do in the law. As many laws can be written on this earth, we can get together in these incredible buildings that have been built and we can come up with all kinds of rules and do's and don'ts and laws and try to force people to be Christ followers, if we will. But that doesn't change the heart. Christ changed the heart. And so we give our lives to him and we trust that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. That he, when he lived this life, he lived it perfectly. He completed the law. We're not here to complete the law. We're here to love Jesus. Well, welcome back to the ITC you know, I just wanted to share a little bit uh, as a follow-up and give some application for you uh, to this passage. So kind of doing a, a two-parter, if you will, but this is really a continuation into the same thing. The law is complex, and like the early church, you may even think, um, why does Paul seem to be so anti-law? Um, is he really anti-law? First, I think it's really important to point out that, that Paul is not against moral law. 
okay? Uh, you know that that's the kind of, of law where we love and care for, for God, His creation, and others. Like, he's not against that law. In fact, he talks a lot about that law all throughout the New Testament and his letters that he wrote. He's constantly telling people how we need to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, so that's more the, the moral law. What Paul is talking about, though, is the ceremonial law or the religious law or the spiritual law or, or things like that. It, it's those kind of laws that, that people think are required to rebuild or reconcile our relationship to God. Those are the laws that, that Paul's speaking about here in chapter 7. The moral law we dealt with in chapter 6, we, we kind of talk about that sin, like when we fail, the moral law, when we're not loving God, we're not loving others, that's, that's like the Ten Commandments, when we break those. And, and those, that wrath that God has for sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ, and so we know that that's forgiven. Well, now we're dealing with the law, and when we deal with the law, we're talking about the, the way in which we can reconcile our relationship to God. And so over time, there was law that was established to say, here you go, here's how you reconcile your relationship to God. And the Hebrew law came in, and, and certainly that was God's plan during that time. And then when Christ comes on the scene, the, the law had been so twisted and the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were used in a way to even oppress people. And they, you know, in all honesty, they probably grew up a little confused and didn't really understand. And Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to explain to them the intent of the law and why God gave the law. And, and he demonstrated and lived out the law so perfectly that he completed the law just like he said he would. That's the law that he's talking about. And so when he died on the cross, all of God's wrath for sin was poured out on him. But the, moral, the, the, the ceremonial law and the law that is required to bring person back into a right relationship with God and reconcile people, well, in the resurrection, that was given to us. When he gave us this gift, he said, here you go, have this gift. It's my righteousness. I perfected, I completed the law for you. So he dealt with sin and he dealt with the law. Now, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ continue to try and complete the law because it seems like that's the right thing to do. And when we do that, we lean on our own works, and unfortunately, we're bound by our own abilities at that point, and we're living on our own strength at that point, and we think to ourselves that we can do right and do good, and God's going to love us even more, but He's already loved us as much as He possibly can because He loves His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are united with Him. And the strength that we have, we know is going to fail. I mean, I'll admit it. Maybe you can admit it too. But I'll admit that there are times in my life when, when I feel like I just don't have much more to give. And, and I feel like, oh, I wish I could do more. I wish I could serve God more. I wish I had more strength. And, and I just don't have enough. And so I feel like I maybe even let God down. And I feel like there's a lot of guilt at that point. Because I'm trying on my own to make my relationship with God better instead of just trusting in Christ. 
That's why I think this is such a powerful statement. Loving Jesus frees us to live. When we love Jesus and we just simply honor him and we trust him and we even say to him, Jesus, I know that you gave your life on the cross for me and died and, and rose from the dead for me. And you gave me your righteousness. That's so freeing to know that I don't have to, I don't have to try any harder. I've already been given the, the gift of eternal life and I've already been given a relationship and I've been reconciled back to my creator, my God, my Father. That's so awesome. Loving Jesus frees us to live. So I want to take a look at a few more verses and tie back to this whole idea of being dead to the law and alive in Christ. Let's take a look at how our debt has been canceled. Here's a passage for you, Colossians 2, 14 to 15. It says, he erased the certificate of debt. We were indebted by our sin. We were indebted when we could not fulfill the law. He says, with its obligations that was once that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Christ. He canceled our debt. Your debt has been canceled. You don't owe anything else to God because Christ has canceled your debt. Well, that leads you to the second point, that your guilt should be gone. And I, I'm wording it that way for a reason. It should be gone. The reality is, even though our debt is gone and our guilt is gone, we oftentimes live with this guilt because we still think there's something more we need to do. And that's the constant battle that we see in our lives. That's the constant battle we see throughout Romans chapter 7 is this back and forth, even in Paul's mind, where he wants to honor and live and serve and do everything right that he can. And then he gets caught up and he thinks, oh, it's, it's all on my back. It's all on my shoulders. And I'm the one that needs to do everything. And then he realizes, oh, I'm living in my own strength again. And I'm depending on myself again. And there's that battle back and forth. And so we, we put this guilt upon ourselves when Christ is saying it's, it should be gone, when God the Father is saying it should be gone. Look what he has to say in Colossians 1.20. And through him, Jesus Christ, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. We're not at war with him. Romans 5.1, again, we have peace with God. Through his blood, shed on the cross, once you were alienated, you were, you were broken off, you were a, in a distant land and hostile in your minds, expressing your evil action, but now he's brought us back. We've been reconciled, and there's no guilt. There should be no guilt unless we place it on ourselves. Well, once we realize that our debt's been canceled, and when we realize that our guilt is gone, that should really encourage us and motivate us to take our freedom then and share it with others. Second Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has, again, this word reconciled, brought us back into a relationship to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry then of reconciliation, that we take this wonderful gift we've been given and we go out and we share it with other people. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and he committed the message of reconciliation then to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That ought to be our ministry. We're going out there, we're telling other people, sharing that truth with other people. I've been reconciled to God. Don't you want to be reconciled to God too? It's a great and wonderful gift. I'm living debt-free. My sins have been forgiven. God's done everything that's needed for the law to be completed in Christ. I'm reconciled. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That law was completed in Christ and then given to us. And that brings us back then to the big idea. We are not here to complete the law. We're here to love Jesus. Because Jesus already completed the law. And we trust his work and not our own. I'm going to give you a time to respond here. I don't know what you're doing with all this information. I don't know what you're thinking about. But I want to ask you to think at least this way if you haven't already. What rules have you tried to live by to make God happy with you? Are you trusting your own works over the work of Jesus? Are, are, you, are you doing your own thing, feeling like, oh, I can do better, I can reconcile my relationship to God by doing my own thing? And if so, then do you feel guilty when you fail? Well, let go and trust the work of Jesus over your own ability to please God. And then, then you'll enjoy his peace. Take some time and think about that for the next couple of minutes.